Thank you for having me. Um, well, first of all, I want to address Mr. Graham. Um, first off, you know, you're, it sounded like you was talking about more of the companies and the businesses in your speech, but you forgot that the people are the ones who make this, these companies operate. And if we're not protected, and if the process for when we hold these companies accountable is not working for us, then that's not what, that's the reason why we're here today. That's the reason why I'm here to represent the workers who make these companies go. And I think that it's in your best interest to realize that it's not a, a left or right thing. It's not a Democrat or a Republican thing. It's a workers thing. It's a workers issue. And we're the ones that are suffering in the corporations that you're talking about, in the businesses that you're talking about, in the warehouses that you're talking about. So that's the reason why I think I was invited today to speak on that behalf. And you should listen because we do represent your constituents as well. Um, so just take that into consideration that the people are the ones that make these corporations go. It's not the, it's not the other way around. So um, as the current interim president of the Amazon Labor Union, who represent 8,300 workers in Staten Island, an independent worker-led union that won their election on April 1st, um, I'm going to tell you this. Uh, we organized for over a year, and throughout the course of that year, Amazon spent millions of dollars, as you mentioned, Senator Standards. Um, myself, including a few other organizers, was arrested outside for organizing, arrested for delivering food to their coworkers. I um, wanted to reiterate that as well. You know, the type of things that Amazon do, um, breaking the law, intimidation, these are real things that traumatize workers in this country. You know, thousands of workers across this country who are in the process of organizing, who have the desire to organize in the United States, um, we want to feel that we have protections. <clears throat> we want to feel that the government is allowing us to use our constitutional rights to organize. Um, the notion that people in the United, United in this democracy will outmatch, outmatch tyranny is the oldest American ideal. This clearly defined legal process to do this. And workers like us have the rights protected by the First Amendment and the National Labor Relations Act. However, despite all of this, our victory in Staten Island was lauded as newsworthy and inspirational for the thousands of workers across the country, hundreds of thousands of workers. And even though we may have won, we did everything right, pressuring Amazon to recognize our victory and comply with our legal obligation to meet us at the bargaining table. But Amazon is refusing to do so. As you mentioned, they're going to stall. Um, they, they filed 25 objections, and they got the NLRB to move the hearing to a whole other location. To me, it just sounds like the corporations have the control, and they control whatever they want. They break the law, they get away with it. They know that already, that breaking the law during these election campaigns won't be resolved during the election campaigns. So they purposely continue to break the law. For example, we filed over 40 ULPs in 11 months. Most of them are, quite a few of them got merit um, for further action. Uh, some of them even got injunctions. For example, Gerald Bryson was fired two years ago. Finally, two years later, over two years later, 
there's a 10-J in motion for his reinstatement. Another prime example, Daquan Smith was fired by the company for organizing. He's still out of a job. He's living in a shelter right now. Uh, we raise money through GoFundMe. These are just a few examples, including myself, who's been out of a job for the last two years. Um, I want to just end off by saying this. We need to pass the PRO Act so that workers are protected and workers are encouraged to organize. And if that don't work, you know, I'm going to let you know right now that on behalf of the Amazon Labor Union and the hundreds of thousands of workers across this country, that we will continue to organize. And once again, I want to remind you that this is not a left or right thing. This is a working class issue. And the workers at the bottom are the ones who make these corporations go. Thank you. number one clips from congressional testimony podcast we are entirely <laughs> listener supported so thank you so much for any money you might be tossing us on the patreon if you're not in the discord already please get in there it's a great place to hang out with other people who are concerned about labor and the hosts of the show if you are a patreon subscriber and you don't have your stickers yet send us your address on patreon and we promise that what we send you will in fact be stickers when you open the box uh <laughs> Leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you think it might help. Uh, and yeah, I guess we're just going to start by mentioning that... You're actually reminding me, I, before you before we do jump into sure. it, I, I still have to send out one set of stickers uh, to someone in Canada. Uh, but if you are worried about us being in the United States and uh, us not being able to send stickers... I've already sent stickers to Australia at, at least once. So so don't don't hesitate to go ahead and send us that address and and we'll we'll I'll head down to the post office and talk to the nice post person and get that sit, that situated. Now I'm Absolutely. just imagining like a kangaroo hopping around with a work stoppage sticker. <laughs> That's where no, the review yeah. needs to be written. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. On a uh, sign that the kangaroo is holding. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Well, oh, uh, we would normally find a time to start talking to you about all of the incredible stuff that's been going on at Starbucks, folks, but I'm afraid there has been so much this week and so many other things to talk about as well that we're going to have to offload all of the Starbucks stuff into an episode of its own. So if you're interested in what's going on uh, at all of the Starbucks that are trying to unionize or have successfully unionized across the country, uh, don't forget to check the tracker that Hollow Solace made and uh, please check out the shop floor discussion episode that we'll be, we will be doing on Starbucks Workers United shortly because it's very exciting. Maybe one of the biggest things happening in the country right now but speaking of big things let's talk about one of the biggest evilest companies <laughs> that anybody's ever heard of i'm talking about chevron the company that has been trying to put a man in jail <laughs> for the last like what, four years for oh, successfully God, yeah. defending uh indigenous bolivians in a 4.5 billion dollar lawsuit and now they are hiring cops to intimidate striking workers in richmond california yeah. it's not an exaggeration either they're literally paying for the police to mm -hmm. do this strike breaking. Yeah, like 
folks may remember from uh, a few weeks back, we talked about how workers have been on strike now, actually, I think almost, just almost for two months now at the Richmond Refinery in California over you know, continued mistreatment of workers, lack safety problems, and bad wages. And in response to the strike, of course, you know, Chevron did their thing of just, just of bringing in, you know, quote-unquote permanent replacements, a.k.a. scabs, um, to try and continue to run the facility without the workers who actually know what they're doing, which is, you know, putting the locals at potential safety hazard by having mm-hmm. people who are not trained on this stuff operate very complex machinery. But in addition to that, as, as y'all said, they've been hiring local police departments from the area to come in and intimidate the workers and harass them while they're on strike. Uh, and this is and and yeah, like as you said, the so the Richmond and the San Pablo Police Department specifically have been getting tens of thousands of dollars a week to cover overtime pay for cops that they're basically just hiring as mercenaries to harass these workers. Yeah. Right. I, I mean, like they they're paying these officers two hundred dollars per hour per officer mm-hmm. to be strike breakers, and uh, I guess. Uh, pr- quote unquote protect scabs uh, from from like crossing the picket line and which really uh, comes to or I mean ends up culminating in them pushing striking workers away from the picket line and char- and like because there's like they're playing music and stuff like that drawing attention basically harassing these striking workers at the same time. Yep. And uh, interestingly, the police departments that have been contracted for this, the Richmond and San Pablo police departments, uh, their response is that, of course, you need police presence on these lines to, quote, preserve safety. And they immediately make the pivot to their favorite talking point, which is that the strike has strained an understaffed department. Yeah. Uh, which is, it's so fucking funny to hear police officers of all people talking about safe staffing. And then uh, at a recent Richmond City Council meeting, you have Councillor Claudia Jimenez, who raised what seems to be the obvious question, the 20 billion pound elephant in the room. Why are we deploying our police officers to support a corporation like Chevron? Yeah, I mean, g- good to see like some local politicians pointing out the obvious that this is a Ridiculous thing, although I do find it to be emblematic of America that the civilian politicians who are nominally in charge of the police department do not know what the police department is doing and seem to have no control over what they're doing, Um, which... Uh, I don't think necessarily is an indictment of, of like Richmond specifically, but yeah, just right, more, it, this is how America tends to function now. It, it kind of has the same energy as when uh, Joe Biden uh, said, we're going to need to call on elected leaders at all levels of our nation to, to secure abortion rights. And it's like, buddy, you are the elected leader of <laughs> yeah. the nation, man. Fuck yeah. you. <laughs> and, and I mean, this is, uh, this is of course, Nowhere near the first time this has happened to folks that listen mm-hmm. to our episodes on the repressive state apparatus or just paid attention to the country over the last few years. Like the strike breaking is one of the primary purposes of the police. It, uh, policing as a, as a profession has existed in the United States for two primary reasons. One to enforce white supremacy via their original role as slave catchers and two to uphold private property primarily through the use the second of thing strike they were doing right the second thing that they were charged with doing was just strike breaking <laughs> yeah exactly um so 
but this is not just something that has just started happening. Basic, less than a week after the strike started, the company reached out to local police asking for a 24-hour guard to prevent any attempts by the workers to sabotage the facility? No. To commit illegal acts? No. To prevent the workers from stopping scabs from entering the refinery. This is, again, this is the same thing we've seen that courts put out injunctions, like at John Deere, at Warrior Met, at a bunch of other strikes that we've covered over the last couple of years, where just the very act of picketing and, like, yelling at scabs is seen as some horrific imposition on the property rights of companies, and it's it's a joke, like... <laughs> and yeah, as you said, like Lena, the, it, when when the police were asked about like why they're spent they're dispatching two officers every day and every night to guard the Chevron facility, they said, "Well, no, we're doing this quote due to the imminent and ongoing public safety concerns of the events at the refinery." That's unquote. fucking disgusting. Oh my god, ten thousand dollars a day to pay for two officers on the line at all times. You could just give that fucking money to the workers and there would be no issue. Well, well and even then, that's not even cutting into the actual profits that they're that they're raking in. Right. I mean, Chevron uh, accumulated 6.3 billion dollars in profit in the first quarter of this year. Over yeah. four times the earnings from last year. I mean, this is a product of the war in Ukraine and the quote-unquote supply chain issues, which has allowed them to, you know, re- uh, crank up prices and and also use the, you know, military-industrial complex of sorts to to basically pad their wallets. And in that same breath, they are telling the workers that they can't afford to come to the table with a good contract. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and. Attributing this to public safety concerns is a joke. The only threat to public safety as a result of this strike is the threat to public safety from the unsafe conditions at this refinery as a result of Chevron refusing to actually pay their workers and come and negotiate in good faith so that the workers can get a good contract to keep the place running. There's no threat to the public by the striking workers. I mean, the Chevron has said a bunch of bullshit that like some of their scabs have been assaulted. There's no proof to any of that. And like, they absolutely would have arrested people if anything like that had happened. And I mean, the BK white, the president of USW local five, which is protesting, like pointed this out correctly when they said, the only reason I think you would have all that is to intimidate our people, but our people are not doing anything wrong. They're conducting themselves well on the picket lines. So yeah, this is, is classic intimidation tactics. They're trying to break the strike. It's, it's incredibly fucked. Reminds mm-hmm. me of that that uh, video of the crying Starbucks manager. They were out on the sidewalks picketing, and the customers <laughs> yeah. had to walk through the picket line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this sucks. It's an, but it's you know this is an incredibly lo- as long as there have been police, they have in the U.S. They have been acting as strike breakers. So you know, continuing a long and sordid tradition. But so all solidarity to the workers on this picket line who are facing this harassment. And if you're in the Richmond area, which is uh, right near Berkeley, I believe, I mean, obviously, you know, if you have an opportunity to show out and show your support to these workers, I'm sure they would appreciate the morale boost.
Absolutely. Certainly, certainly. And uh, in a really quick story, which is just something we want to hit real quick because uh, the news on this has been so frustrating. The Hudson workers, which we did that interview with the Masked Voices uh, quite a while ago. Well, they finally have a set date for the counting of their ballots, which originally were cast in January. Insane. I mean, so on May 11th, we're going to actually see the count of the Hudson Workers United election. Hey everyone, I'm just cutting in here real quick to give another update on this. Uh, it's been postponed actually till May 18th because there was a COVID exposure at the NLRB office that is counting these ballots. So yeah, just a little update. Uh, we don't actually have a lot more information than that to update, but we're fi- we're happy that the NLRB finally got around to to helping these workers out. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, while we're talking about good news, let's ta- let's follow up on something that we talked about previously that we thought was really interesting, which is the Warrior Met coal miners who decided that instead of um, going and protesting outside of Warrior Met, they would go protest outside of BlackRock, which is the largest uh, shareholder of Warrior Met. And what was what were the results of that? BlackRock has turned around and told Warrior Met they need to reach an agreement. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because I, I, I remember when, like, Warrior Met first started doing these protests in New York City outside mm-hmm. BlackRock. I did see some people being like, look, it's they're the big, they're a giant Wall Street firm. They're not going to do anything. Why would you do this? But, I mean, it's, it's taken a long time. Look, th- these folks have been on strike for over a year, but this is a real result. Like, the Warrior Met at their latest shareholder meeting – put out a statement saying, quote, prolonged operational disruptions such as labor disputes can have a negative impact on a company's financial performance and business resilience. We believe it is in the best economic interest of our client for Warrior Met Coal and UMWA to reach a resolution. And they directed Warrior Met, since, you know, they are the the biggest shareholder, to actually, you know, go back to negotiating and resolve this instead of just doing the bullshit that they have been doing, which is continuing to operate using scabs and and, base, and functionally locking out the workers. Yeah, it's kind of interesting, too, because I think a lot of people have this idea that, like, oh, yeah, BlackRock is this, uh, they're this giant financial institution. They don't really care. But, like, one thing that giant financial institutions don't have is a lot of experience with dealing with workers face-to-face. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it can be very, very effective to kind of jolt them back to reality by showing up and being like, hey, we're the people whose lives you're ruining so you can line your pockets. Yeah. Yeah. And and Cecil Roberts, the president of UNWA, had a a statement in response saying – when even the giant Wall Street firms that own your company say enough is enough, it's time to end this strike. The work, the workers, families, and communities Warrior Met continues to hold hostage by needlessly prolonging this ordeal need to get back to a sense of normalcy, and the company needs to get back to full production with an experienced workforce. And so, you know, we'll see how this ends up playing out, but I, I think this is a, a real step forward and a validation of the tactics that, you know, the, the UMWA have, have been deploying that I think have seen a decent amount of criticism. So, but uh, one more quick hit story that we want to do before we move into some of the longer ones today. This is a, this is an unfortunate one. Um, this is a, a follow, a follow up that I, you know, nobody hoped would ever happen, which is, we did a story a few weeks back about the shack dwellers movement in South Africa, which is a very radical worker-led movement fighting for the, the absolute poorest folks in South African society. And a big way they've been doing that is by building these communes in like 
areas that have all these unu- this unused land that hasn't been done with anything. And so they're trying to actually provide an ability for the workers with no land, really no property at all, to actually be able to create self-sustainable communities. And that has, they have come under fierce attack, and we had pre- previously discussed the assassination of one of the leaders of that movement, um, Ayanda Ngila. And this is in a long line of violence that, that this movement has faced. And unfortunately, that violence has continued where last Thursday night, another leader of the Shack Dwellers movement was murdered at the same commune in Durban, South Africa. Uh, Nokuthula Mabaso, who is 40 years old, who was another leader of the Ikehena commune, was at, you know, at the commune helping, I believe, working on a, a chicken farm that they had there. Mm-hmm. And was shot five times during the attack and and murdered. And Mubaso was not just a leader in the commune, but was also a key witness in uh, Ayanda and Gila's murder and was set to testify against the gang that killed him. And so it's obviously, you know, this would seem to be connected and was probably carried mm-hmm. out by the same people with the complicity of the police because, again, this attack happened less than 500 meters from a police station and the police station did not send anyone to respond to this, which was again, a shooting, which there's no way they could have not heard for over two hours. So, yeah, I mean, uh, that's, that's very insane. It's, it's, I mean, it shows the complicity with the police. I mean, they, they're not interested in actually protecting these people who are just trying to lift up some of the poorest people in, in South Africa. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's very, very insane to think that there's any nation in the world where people would reasonably entertain the idea that, like, these killings were not explicitly related. And, I mean, this is just so on its face. It, it's really hard not to kind of extrapolate out how hand-in-glove the police and this gang and, and all of the local bourgeois are, uh, are coordinating here and uh, in a statement from the uh, the Shack Dwellers movement, you have that very sentiment where they say the ANC, the police, the municipality, the prosecuting authority, and the magistrates who keep sending innocent people to jail after the police say that they have arrested to investigate, whereas they should be investigating to arrest, all need to be held accountable for their role in the long, violent, and criminal attack on Ekanana. The community is crying. The poor are crying. The world is crying out. Yeah. Yeah. Fucking so devastating, honestly. Yeah, like really like, is. to the I don't even know how to truly uh, you know, put into words how awful this situation is that they that these people who are again just helping some of the poorest people in South Africa are being subject to extreme state violence, including gangs that are supported by the state and the and the police that are part of the state. Yeah, I don't even know how you would translate this into, like, North America terms. Like, imagine if cops came around and shot the people running Habitat for Humanity or something. Or, like, Food Not Bombs. Food Not Bombs, that's a better better example, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's the only... I guess the only sort of thing to take from this that might even be somewhat good is that, like, look, these folks would not be facing this level of violence if they weren't actually doing something that mattered. Like... Right. It, the the police, the political establishment, the business leaders in the area would not be so fucking terrified of what these people are doing that they would send 
assassination teams, basically death squads, mm -hmm. to go after these people if they didn't see the program that they're doing to uplift the poor there and help them like actually sell like build a real life and and some independence for themselves. If they didn't see that as a threat to their rule, they wouldn't be doing this. Like you you don't see this level of persecution against groups that are just doing nothing and and not actually affecting a real change. And I know that doesn't bring people back. It doesn't make up for any of this, but it I don't know. It's 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 the only good thing you could possibly take from this. So well, all like our solidarity before, yeah. you know with with the Shack Dwellers movement and yeah, like we were saying, I mean, like this is mass line work. This is this is yeah. what we talk about when we talk about building uh, actual infrastructure and real mutual aid amongst people that builds the infrastructure to to build towards you know revolution. But even then, I mean, these people are are just trying to create sustainable infrastructure. So yes, again, yeah. all, all solidarity with these folks. To the next story, we've got a thousand UAW workers who are striking at Case New Holland in Wisconsin and Iowa, and we're definitely going to get the strike fund in the in the notes for this one because it's really important to be supporting the workers out there. But on Monday, May second, the thousand UAW workers at Case New Holland industrial machine plants in wisconsin and iowa walked off the job on to the picket lines after their prior six-year contract expired i mean a six-year contract that's uh, yeah, i'm glad that ridiculous. they're they're going out there and, and striking now um 98.4 percent of the members voted to strike here and the plant produced some of the most common industrial and agricultural machinery including backhoes forklifts tractors and this is really important right now with all of the threats of of you know uh, farming supplies and 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 food shortages mm -hmm. uh in regards to the the like ukrainian conflict and uh so so this company has been seeing huge amounts of profits and they have decided to that it's more preferential to put the workers out on the on the picket line instead of actually coming to the table and coming creating a good deal yeah, so one of the, the things that these workers are fighting against is a two-tiered pay system, uh, pay and benefit system, very similar to what we've seen at John Deere, very similar to what we've seen at employers all across the entire country. And in this two-tiered system, the people in the higher tier are making $8 an hour more than the workers on the lower tier. That's an entire U.S. federal minimum wage plus a little bit in pay yeah. disparity. Yeah, I mean, it's it's ridiculous. and. The head of the UAW's agricultural implement department, Chuck Browning, said that specific, like what the workers are fighting for is against stuff like that two-tiered system and, mm -hmm. quote, for the ability to earn a decent living, retire with dignity, and establish fair work rules, end quote. And so workers, like generally who are on the picket line, have said that they were directly inspired for their strike by the John Deere strike last year and that they intend to fight for similar wins that the UAW workers at John Deere got. So what they want to push for is stuff like a wage increase of 10%, higher retirement benefits, more time off. And like, this is exemplified in the fact that the starting wages at the plant for like an assembler, if you're working on a tractor or a backhoe or something is about $20 an hour, which is I mean, yeah, it's better than some jobs, but it's significantly less than the same work being done at other places like John Deere. And of course, over the length of this six-year contract has not increased nearly enough to keep up with the insane inflation we're dealing with right now. And yeah, like, as you said, Lena, like they've seen in like, this is not, 
they haven't, it's not that they haven't raised wages because case new Holland isn't doing well. Like the, their revenues are through the roof. Their quarterly income this year is already 13% higher than last year. Uh, because like since Ukraine and Russia export about 40% of the world's wheat, there's been, because of the conflict, and the splintering of supply chains, there's been an enormous increase in demand for agricultural machinery that they make. Like, it, and to, they made so much money last year, they paid their CEO, Scott Wine, $17.4 million. Jesus. But apparently they can't afford to pay the people that are actually building the equipment they're selling, allowing them to make that money more than $40,000 a year, <laughs> according to them. Yeah. And How so ridiculous. Yeah. And so, of course, rather than actually negotiating a fair contract, they intend to bring in scabs. And when Local 807 members uh, blocked the parking lots uh, on Tuesday right after the strike began, uh, of course, that they were able to do that for a little while until the company called the police who came in and as, as is their role as strike breakers. Uh, you know, moved all the forced all the workers away from the parking lot to let the scabs in. And then on Wednesday, we had yet another instance of a vehicle attack on the picket line where workers were blocking the the parking lot and somebody hit a worker with their car. I didn't see any reports of injuries, so I, I think, thankfully, I don't think anybody was seriously hurt, which is good. Always, always good to hear that. We don't mm-hmm. want to actually hear about any real injuries. But, like, this is the thing. When you we hear shit like cops talking about, we have to be there to protect public safety. Well, where were you keeping cars from hitting people? Like what the when they say they're protecting public safety, that they mean is protecting the interests of the company. They have no intention of protecting the workers who are on the picket line. They are there to protect Case New Holland's profits. Right. Oh, absolutely. Certainly. And then we did also see at least one salaried engineer who walked off the job in solidarity with the striking workers. Aaron Kennelly, who has since been fired, told reporters, quote, it went against my morals and ethics to cross a picket line, especially with co-workers, many that I've known for years. And then Hell once yeah. his uh, uh, his decision to stand with the workers uh, earned some publicity, instead of turning around and asking for support for himself, he launched a GoFundMe to raise money for supplies for the striking union members. So way to fucking go. Aaron seems like a really good dude. <laughs> yeah, this rocks. <laughs> Shout out and, to this guy. Yeah, like uh, as somebody who's gone through engineering school, uh, I was unfortunately surprised that anyone did this because engineering mm-hmm. school has an extremely reactionary ideology. But we need a lot more of this. Like, it, more engineers need to show solidarity with the workers that are on the line. Like, we, I, I want to see whole engineering departments walk off in solidarity mm-hmm. like shut down the fucking design bureau don't go out there and act as fucking scabs and try to operate tractors you don't know how to operate and run into shit and get injured or or even just continue to work and help out the company while these workers are out there on the line fighting like well they and fired- don't leave heroes like fucking aaron out there to yeah. be fired we need cons- he needs to be protected with concerted activity right. and i mean i mean they don't have hiring and firing power do they I'm no. pretty Engineers? sure that no. if no. The, if they went if they went out there collectively, they would be protected under the NLRA. Absolutely, and like this this person would not have been able to be fired legally. Yeah, so like we need we need more people to do this stuff because the thing is like it's easy for them to fire one worker. I mean, even regardless of the NLRA protections, like they they can fire one engineer and go get another engineer. If even just ten 
Mm-hmm. 15, 20 engineers walked up. It doesn't even have to be fucking hundreds or a thousand like this. That becomes extremely difficult for the company to replace. And so like the honestly, frankly, other engineers out there, your individual risk level by walking off, even without a union is a lot lower than it is for these workers who are going out there on the line when, like to fight for a living wage. And you're also probably in a better position financially to be able to be off of like the paycheck for a while. So yeah, more engineers need to do this shit. Excellent work by this, uh, Aaron Kennelly, great job. And hopefully we'll start seeing more of this. Yeah. Well, I mean, we have a quote from local 807 president, Nick Guernsey, who forecasts a little bit about how long he thinks the strike will last. And he says, I think what's going to get seeing CNH industrial back to the table is when they start losing money and they'll probably start feeling it at four weeks. I've told my membership to expect CNHI to keep us out for three to six months, which is a very long time. So uh, any solidarity or support you can show to these workers, uh, in well, it doesn't have to be as badass as what Aaron Kennelly did, but I'm sure every drop in the bucket makes a difference. So yeah, absolutely. And and we'll be making sure to post that strike fund in the show notes. Definitely encourage people to donate to that. And they have already seen a good amount of community support as far as food and supply donations. And one other thing I just did want to say before we move on to the next story is that unsurprisingly, like so many of these strikes, CNH has already threatened to cut the striking workers' health care to try and force them back to work by basically threatening them with death from medical problems. So uh, the union has asked supporters to flood CNH with demands not to do that, and they provided a specific email address that they wanted people to bombard with with requests for them not to cut off workers' health insurance, and that they said said to email brian.french at cnhind.com. Wow, another another cool way for engineers to help build a bot. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Again, that's B-R-I-A-N period, F-R-E-N-C-H, at symbol, C-N-H-I-N-D, dot com, and uh, tell them to not cut off the workers' health care. And then yeah. email them a five-star review of our show. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So solidarity with these striking workers, it sounds like they're probably going to be out there for a while. So any support that we can show them, I mean, if you happen to be in the areas in Wisconsin or um, Iowa near the plants, obviously, you know, support in person is always greatly appreciated by, by strikers. So, but moving into our weekly segment covering the great e-commerce colossus strangling our country. Here's our Amazon segment for the week, folks. That's um, right. Our, our first part of this, the, the, the Amazon roundup is going over the, Amazon's challenge to the JFK union where they have all their litany of stupid bullshit charges like the 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 workers coerced other workers by giving them free weed. This is clearly illegal and the election should be overturned. So like yeah, we've discussed that they were challenging this before. It's obviously stupid and goofy and has no legal basis. But as we've seen in the United States, you don't have to have a legal basis for your court case to get heard by reactionary judges. And recently there was a move made that makes the chance of that happening go up slightly, which is that because of the fact that as part of this challenge, they are like claiming that the local NLRB showed bias towards the workers they were successful in getting the, their lawsuit moved from New York, where this stuff actually happened, to Arizona, all the way across the country. So, 
it's still pretty like because again because of the fact that they have no le- real legal basis for these charges it is still relatively unlikely it will succeed however this does drag things out by moving it across the country it and it can this sort of shit continues to give it, it helps amazon in a bunch of ways one it gives them the uh, an excuse to drag out certification of the election and to not negotiate with the alu which gives them more time to harass the union and illegally fire people and on the outside but non-zero chance that they get the kind of insane federalist society grown in a vat ghoul that they want to to uh, actually rule on this they have an ultimate maximalist goal with their lawsuit of basically trying to invalidate the NLRA itself and, and functionally <laughs> saying that like the protections in the NLRA are an unconstitutional interference with Amazon's private property rights. Well, that's uh, exactly what wow. they were going at the whole time when they were talking about undue influence from mm-hmm. the local NLRB. I mean, like that's why we laughed. We like basically scoffed at the uh, entire premise that we thinking that the NLRB is kind of a right wing labor board of of all things mm-hmm. to say that that is some sort of uh, imposition on the company that uh, like that. It just absolutely ridiculous on its face, but it does show that Amazon themselves would really just prefer that there be no worker protections at all. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 100%. Well, and uh, it, it's very interesting that uh, they they say that in in New York there might be potential conflicts with uh, yeah. the um, challenges, but it's like, don't you think that taking the case to one of the most conservative states in the entire country doesn't also present like an obvious? conflict <laughs> like arizona yeah. is one of the most fucking like uh septic and libertarian places in the united states it's insane yeah i mean it's yeah, i mean it look it's an illustration that it's like hey the legal system is not built to help us right <laughs> it, it is built to help amazon so i i do still think most likely the case will end up getting dismissed after way after dragging this shit out way way too long mm-hmm. but it's important to keep an eye on it because amazon has a shitload of money to spend on their legal team and to try and pull all these weird loopholes and, and manipulate the system to try and get the outcome they want so right don't don't completely count it out it's something to, that we'll we'll still be watching but and speaking uh, of shit loads of money and loopholes mm-hmm. uh amazon is also re- uh reacting to the re- to the leak of the roe v wade decision from the supreme court and uh offering abortion uh like pr- like money for people who have to travel over a hundred miles to get an abortion but it comes with a huge amount of caveats that basically leave very, very few workers actually protected by this benefit. First, they are limiting it to ba- to full-time employees that are s- direct employees of Amazon. So as we've talked about, like Amazon Flex and other sorts of independent contractors that are associated with Amazon, none of those workers, regardless of fuller full-time employment status, are going to be protected by this benefit. Additionally, even in Amazon itself, part-time employees won't be covered. I mean, the list goes on. What, who am I missing? This is kind of falls under the umbrella you're talking about, but unsurprisingly, the millions of workers who do work for Amazon as flex drivers using their app, of course, they are not getting this. That's not a surprise. They should be, they should get any of these benefits, but of course, gig workers are treated like trash. Um, And, oh, the other one, 
This only counts if you get employer-provided health insurance, which means if you are an Amazon worker and you work more than 20 hours a week, which would theoretically qualify you for it, but Amazon's wages are so low that you still don't make enough money to really live and, you actually, and you're on Medicaid, then you don't get the benefit either. So, like, it, look, it's, it, I'm, it's good that Amazon is providing a, a benefit for folks who are going to be living in states that will be, have abortion bans. But it's hard to really praise them when they essentially wrote the policy in such a way as the only people that are going to be able to access it are, like, mostly, like, their tech workers. Mm-hmm. Oh, certainly. I mean, we see that all the time when we, we see benefits. Yeah, it's a very pronounced case of Democrat brain. It's like, oh, there's a there's a there's a huge public crisis. Okay, here's a private solution that is heavily means tested and ends up only being available to maybe one to five percent of the people that it's quote unquote intended to help. Right. Well, and even then, it leaves out some of the most precarious workers, some of the lowest paid mm-hmm. workers, the people who actually need this benefit the most, the people who can't afford the thousands of dollars to. Try travel to another state or a, in a, another location in general uh, because these, you know, uh, like abortions are not only just expensive because of the actual service that it entails, but the actual getting to the service to actually be able to be provided the service can cost tons of money. Think about hotels and other sorts of costs uh, associated with this. I mean, yeah. it's ridiculous. Yeah. So continuing on with with more Amazon news to some actual good news um, on Friday, the NLRB had a really busy day on Friday. Tune into the Starbucks uh, episode we're going to do for another big piece of news out of the NLRB on there. But on Friday, they issued a big complaint against Amazon for their constant illegal union busting. The regional office in Brooklyn of the NLRB agreed with the ALU on the basically the majority of their ULPs that they filed during the JFK 8 election campaign and agreed that many of the actions that Amazon took to try and defeat the union bust the union campaign were in fact illegal and very importantly this complaint brings us one step closer to getting rid of captive audience meetings because in the complaint, the regional office agreed with the general counsel um, who had put out an opinion a couple months ago, I think, saying that in general, captive audience meetings, not just at Amazon, but as a practice, violate the NLRA. So, I mean, this is, it's just the first step, but like this is, this is beginning the legal process by which we could see captive audience meetings actually get banned, which would be, you know, huge. As someone uh, who's th- gone through captive audience meetings, it would be amazing. That was one of the most, like, awful times of my life at work where, like, I have friends that I work with that are being pitted against me because, uh, you know, so the company decided that they want to force us to not have a union. It's re- It's really just awful situation we've gone over union busting so many times but i just want to hammer home again how fucking awful this practice is it ruins people's lives and relationships with the people that they spend most of their day day with yeah and so the board agreed with the union that amazon illegally threatened to withhold benefits from workers if they unionized that they illegally told employees they could be fired if the warehouse unionized and they failed to pay union dues and so the board basically came out and said, look, you broke the law on a whole bunch of occasions. So 
if you'd like, we can negotiate a settlement where you agree to resolve all this shit and to not do captive audience meetings anymore, or we can sue you and take this to an administrative law judge. Um, unsurprisingly, Amazon has not so far opted to take the settlement route. Um, but so Seth Goldstein, the lawyer for the ALU, uh, he responded to this very, very happily saying that he was, was glad to see the ruling taking decisive steps to end required captive audience meetings. And he responded to Amazon's complaints about the union. Cause it, one of the things that, that Amazon obviously keeps complaining about, and they put this in their lawsuit against the election that it's now going to be heard in Arizona was they're complaining that, Oh, the union organizers disrupted our illegal captive audience meetings. And that disruption was illegal somehow. And so Goldstein responded to those complaints saying, quote, it's a bit rich for Amazon to complain about interrupting captive audience meetings that are themselves inherently coercive, end quote. And yeah, he's 100% right about that. And so, yeah, un unsurprisingly, Amazon says they're going to fight the ruling. And so we'll, we'll see what happens as that goes through the legal process. But this is a this is a big step. This is a and unfortunately, this is a relatively speedy <laughs> step by the NLRB since, you know, the election only happened, what, six weeks ago. Uh, this is the sort, like the sort of thing I would well, expect to hear like six months from now. The from thing the that NLRB I want to point out here is the fact that this ALU win is the impetus for this change. Mm -hmm. Like when, when you see the actual rights of workers come to fruition, even through the state, it is in response to workers' actions every single time. Absolutely. There, no matter how much uh, our history books want to do great man theory of some sort of, oh, the this president made sure the NLRA happened. No, the workers themselves were the ones who put the pressure out there and showed that we were not going to back down. And if you don't give us rights, then we're going to make things a lot more real for you. Yeah. Absolutely. And unfortunately, while this legal process is playing out, Amazon is not stopping its illegal campaign. And they have turned to Howard Schultz's favorite union busting tack of just firing people for being union organizers. Mm -hmm. They uh, this past week, they fired two uh, prominent ALU organizers, Matt Cusick and Tristan Dutchin, who were both fired for being union organizers. It's not what the company said. Um, Cusick was told that he was fired for quote job abandonment, despite the fact that he was on leave caring for a family member who had COVID and Dutchin was told that he was fired for failing for falling behind productivity targets. And unfortunately, unlike with Starbucks, I think it's going to be a lot harder to legally prove that these were retaliatory because like, look, it, they were there. These are clearly retaliatory firings. Any contention that they're anything else is a lie and is stupid. But as we reported on before, Amazon's whole business model of having incredibly high turnover, culling their workforce by 10% every year, firing people by algorithm and shit. Not only does that make workers lives hell, but since that's their standard practice, it's going to be, I think, really easy for them to claim, look, this is just, this is how we operate. We fire people for stupid bullshit reasons all the time. This is normal. <laughs> this isn't retaliation. We, it's not retaliation. We're just like this. Yeah, yeah. we just suck really bad. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, look, but what it really is, is this is a demonstration of exactly why these union fights are so vital. Because, like, if we have to rely on the courts for Matt and Tristan to get their jobs back, I don't 
frankly think there's a very high chance of that happening. But if we get more unionized Amazon warehouses and these sorts of illegal firings start being met with strikes, I think we're going to start seeing, you know, these firings stop because uh, like the courts are on Amazon's side, the politicians are on Amazon's side. But if Amazon starts seeing like warehouses shut down and people's packages start getting delayed and they start seeing complaints and they start making less money, that's the sort of thing that'll make a difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In our last piece of our Amazon news for this week, uh, as you will have heard at the top of the show, uh, and as I'm sure most people were aware of, because this was really big news last week, uh, there was a big splash by the ALU where ALU interim president Chris Smalls testified in Congress alongside other labor organizers like Sean O'Brien from the Teamsters about Amazon's illegal anti-worker conduct. Uh, I, I think probably the, the stuff people mostly saw was Smalls, as usual, incredibly fire wardrobe choices. Uh, it I got to admit, it was pretty awesome to see somebody wearing a, a dripped out eat the rich jacket mm-hmm. on the floor of the U.S. Senate. That was pretty cool. Um, and and he didn't just show up there and be like, oh, you know, I'm so honored to be here. Thank you all for talking with me, Mr. Senators and all that. Because this is the sort of thing we sometimes get from like liberals who are just in awe of the institution. No, like because he showed up to this labor um, committee and of course, immediately the conservatives there from both parties, Lindsey Graham and Tim Kaine launched into this long defense of Amazon, Lindsey Graham leaning into the whole, Oh, Amazon are job creators horseshit that we always hear. And Tim Kaine, who again, like was like the VP candidate a few years back is just falling over himself being like, well, I don't, I just don't know. I don't know why we're being so adversarial and, and Amazon, they create so many jobs and they bring so much money into my district. And, and really don't, I think we can all agree that what's really best is when unions and management work together. And oh my it's so just the, all the standard nonsense that we hear from bourgeois politicians and Chris Smalls pushed back against all that shit. Like it was, it was great to hear. I mean, as you, as you heard from the clips at the top of the episode, he came out and pointed out, he's like, look, <laughs> these big companies that you're talking about that are, like made so much money, they aren't anything without their workers, which is exactly the key point that all these people always leave out. There's this idea that Amazon is a huge company and there's all these employees because Jeff Bezos and three other nerds, were so nice that they gave all these people jobs, which is bullshit. The only reason those people got rich is off the backs of the hard work of people like Chris Smalls and all the other workers at places like JFK eight. And, and Chris was out there <laughs> saying that to everybody in, and the, that's the thing that's so important about this because I know it's easy to get cynical because we know that the U S government is the enemy of the working class, but by going there, by making these statements, by defending the working class and calling out this sorts of corporate talking points, Chris was able to use that as a platform that to talk to people who never hear this stuff, people who are never going to listen to a goofy communist labor podcast like ours or like are, and aren't going to hear the sort of left-wing talking points that we wish everyone would hear. Like this was an mm-hmm. opportunity for the working class to actually talk to other workers who never hear this sorts of stuff. And I think Chris did a great job. Well, I think that one of the things that we can highlight from that is when he did focus on the working class, when he used the line, which I, I don't know 
I haven't seen people critique it, but I imagine in the back of some people's minds, they would be like when he said, it's not a left or right issue, it's a working class issue. And that is a that is to point out that we are there, like as people on the left, we are actually trying to lift up all people because we know that socialist programs are incredibly popular and mm-hmm. that whatever the rhetoric around Democrats or Republicans, because when he says left or right, he's referring mostly to the Repu- the, the Democrat or Republican uh, notion. The, the colloquial that, definition. Right, right, which is obviously not how we look at it, but, but still that's how a lot of people understand it. And to point then to the working class to say, oh, well, it doesn't matter. I am. I should be looking out for the interests of workers. I should be su- holding solidarity with these unions, and I should have a union myself, regardless of the fact that I don't agree with this or that, whichever party, you know, because we are there. As communists, we are trying to raise everyone up it reminds me of that that whole that hilarious meme that is like oh when the revolution comes buddy you're gonna get the wall in fact you're gonna get four walls and a roof and food and you're gonna be able to feed and clothe yourself and and have a family like that's that's one of my favorite memes because i think that that's really the notion that he was getting at with that point yeah and and of course, uh, you know, Joe Biden tried to, you know, latch on to this and get some get a popularity boost for his failing administration by inviting like a bunch of labor organizers for a photo op in the Oval Office on the exact same day that his administration signed a $10 billion contract with Amazon for cloud computing services for the NSA to read all our emails. Joe Biden just can't stop going around <laughs> handing out contracts at the most inopportune time. Like, what was it? Uh, he he gave out that, that really big oil contract right after he oh, said he wasn't yeah. going to give out any more oil contracts. And there was another time he did this, too. I'm, just the other day, me. he did the $40 billion uh, contract for the for Ukraine, uh, specific, like basically foregoing any COVID relief. Yeah, oh, I mean, yeah. This is, this is, it's, it's a constant. One I mean, after yeah, the, another. The, one of the big things was when he was campaigning in 2020, he multiple times during his campaign said, we're going to end federal contracts to companies that refuse to sign neutrality agreements and bust unions. Nip, just... That was a lie, has, has never applied that ever, continues to give huge contracts to Amazon and all sorts of country, companies that are constantly union busting. And the Democrats are all on board with that, like pretty much. There was a, there was a motion that was put forward, at, I don't know if it was a budget bill, but some bill that would have barred tech companies specifically from receiving federal subsidies unless they, were, unless they signed neutrality agreements. And that was, that was bipartisan, you know, like Joe Biden's favorite thing. We love bipartisanship. We love both parties getting together and agreeing that, no, we don't want to help workers. What are you talking about? It's so crazy because <laughs> everyone, everyone that that's like an independent, the mythical independent voter who cares about bipartisanship. And it's like it, it, it's insane because the logic of the cultural logic of the United States is like, oh, if it's bipartisan, it must be good. And most of the time, something being bipartisan means it's actually so unequivocally evil <laughs> yeah. that both parties are just happy to get behind it <laughs> yeah i mean the well like what are the things the two parties can unite on they love war war uh, yeah. they hate china um mm-hmm. they have no intention of doing anything about covid uh and they hate spending oh, money on the working class and they uh really hate people protesting in front of the supreme court justices mm-hmm. homes like th- those are the only bipartisan things that i think i've seen in the last oh, 10 po- years police they support the police together yeah yeah no it's so, yeah, I mean, it sucks. But despite the Democrats and Republicans being the enemies of the working class and being terrible, uh, I still think that 
Chris Malls made an excellent use of the opportunity to get in front of all those cameras and speak to so many people about the needs of the working class and the need for workers to be organized into unions. And I, I think he did a really good job with yeah. that messaging. So. Well, I, I really think that one of the things that Chris and the ALU in general have been really, really strong on and what I think is super critical is like whether or not they're going to come out and like say we're a socialist union or whatever, which would make me right. happy, but I don't know if it's going to happen or if it would even be tactically advantageous. What they're doing is much simpler. They're just saying like we exist outside of party politics and in fact in many ways are antagonistic to party politics because they don't address the needs of workers and that's that's brilliant that's such an effective way to reach people well and on the left we see it we see the 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 flyers with the red stars and and like the the red and yellow iconography like we, we know what we know what it looks like and and like we don't have to hear it as explicitly especially when they're doing a working class movement like i mentioned in my little rant earlier about lifting up all people and bringing everyone into mm-hmm. this movement because again we with our ideas are incredibly popular it's just the rhetoric that scares people away and yeah. i do ag- agree that we need to be very explicitly socialist in in most of our rhetoric most of our rhetoric but i mean in these amazon facilities i think that this sort and honestly speaking to the nation on a whole which we have an incredibly reactionary nation i think it's important to do our best to bring people in yeah well unlike the power of the union movement movement isn't that it's going to comb through the country and select out the most perfect diamond in the rough Marxists. It's that it's going to help be one of the tools that educates the general populace into having more of a class consciousness. Right. See Lenin on the trade union issue (laughs) uh, overtime episode. Yeah. Also, Um, just look up the words uneven development or or (laughs) heterogeneous development. It's interesting to think about that things don't all advance simultaneously and uniformly. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, uh, to move to our next story, we're going to be going to Boston teachers who are fighting for a fair contract. And uh, is we have covered a bunch of teacher strikes. In fact, there was a little bit of a, uh, a kind of, I don't know, a, a foretelling that there's going to be a lot of teachers' actions this year specifically. And mm-hmm. this one in particular is in Boston, there where teachers uh, in Cambridge and Brookline have been fighting for a new contract for nearly a year uh in order to you know raise their benefits and and uh and limit class sizes because the actual public school district is trying to eliminate uh class size limits and allow school administrators to assign teachers non-teaching duties and the ability for the school district to reassign teachers at any time without their consent there's and i mean there's also the insulting $200 bonus for working through the pandemic which to me also had rings of oh you're getting your bonus for working through the pandemic because the pandemic is over yeah. yeah. So these these uh, these teachers contract expired all the way back in August. <laughs> so they've been yeah. negotiating for nine months. And during a recent negotiating session in April, Cambridge Public Schools proposed a contract that included, among other things, eliminating all limits on class size. Which is that I'm sorry if I'm rehashing what you already said, but that's insane to me. All limits on class size is ridiculous. And this is in Massachusetts where these teachers are legally barred from exercising their right to strike in protest of this. Yeah, like this is this is from a, a Liberation News article, and that was something that I didn't realize because you know we've talked in the past about like one of the weird things about public sector organizing is that it's all it's because of our stupid federal system, like it's very patchy. The it's mm-hmm. it's state by state by state, they all have different laws on this, and the fact that like because that's one of the things you know Massachusetts has this reputation as like the most left, it's the most liberal state, them or California, but 
just like so much of the rest of the country, including the, some of the most states with the most reactionary state governments, it's illegal for teachers to strike in Massachusetts, which is part of the reason that the teachers in Cambridge and Brookline have had to resort to different sorts of pressure tactics to try and actually get the things that they need. Like the Cambridge Educators Association, which represents the Cambridge teachers, has had to hire an arbitrator to mediate with the school system. And as we have talked about many times before, arbitrators don't usually tend to actually favor workers. Um, and no, they, like, they really they believe in the, the idea of labor peace. They are there as yes. labor peace arbitrators. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And the teachers are demanding such, oh, man, such out there crazy demands as wages that keep with inflation. <laughs> That when the district does anti-racism training, which they support, that the teachers be paid oh my <laughs> for God. being at work to do these trainings. Yeah, you should never be at work and not get paid. I don't know. Maybe like you don't get paid for the Christmas party if it's on a weekend <laughs> yeah. or something. But like other than that. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, they are asking for policies that ensure the retention of educators of color, because as we know, a lot of times, even in places that claim to be, oh, no, we, we care about all this stuff. We put out all those signs that say we actually care about these issues. Yet still, there are, are often so many like structural things that tend to have people of color be the first people fired when Mm -hmm. there are budget cuts and the last people to be granted tenure. And so they're looking for, you know, policies that will stop that and actually promote, uh, like actually supporting teachers of color. And they are demanding that, you know, as compensation for continuing to work through the pandemic, putting their lives in at risk, that they get a bonus that isn't 200 fucking dollars which is a sick joke to be honest yeah that's like, a disgrace i mean um, the, the teachers themselves put more money than that into school supplies for their classrooms out of their personal paychecks every year yeah absolutely and so similar issues going on in brook in brookline where the brookline educators union is fighting for raises that compensate for inflation they want more hiring because right now like in so many workforces that we see the teachers are slammed with overwork because they don't have enough co-workers and once again a commitment to that this the schools actually put policies in place instead of just paying lip service to keeping and and hiring educators of color and so uh, that we have a quote from the president of the Brookline Educators Union, Jessica Wender-Shubo, who told Liberation News, so all of a sudden, their lawyer shows up by bargaining with a new package of proposals to diminish union rights, take away the professional judgment of teachers and which staff meetings they can attend, and to extend the elementary school day for no pay, end quote. And she basically said that the school is trying to to run the district quote, like a lean production machine, end quote, which personally I think incredibly that's, smart insight there because that's exactly what they're doing. Yeah. Like, I mean, like, yeah, they're trying to get the, the 57 second minute out of fucking teachers. Yeah, 100%. Because that's the thing is I think because I, I think people like tend not to think of teachers as the same kind of workers as, you know, the, the person on the, that picture on the cover of the old copies of state and rev where it's just some dude swinging a hammer in a foundry somewhere. Sure. And that's like that, that's what an industrial worker is, but like the sort of lean manufacturing maximum efficiency, zero waste stuff that's applied 
everywhere, including in schools. Which is, and it's absolutely vital that if you want people to actually get an education, the teachers push back on that shit and don't let them do this. Well, like teaching a kid is not assembling a car. I'm sorry. It's it it's not apples to oranges. It's like apples to understanding quantum physics. It's like <laughs> it's, they're they're just radically different things. Like being a teacher is a what I would think of as like a socially expanded role. Like, yes, you have a job and a role to play in hours and a paycheck, but you also have like responsibilities and a role within your community that are so much greater than that. And like we we need to structure the way that teachers and students interact around the the way that their relationship functions. I don't know if that's like too materialist for the United States or something, <laughs> but like well, it seems another, pretty boilerplate to me. This intensification of work is exactly the kind of thing that the the private educators want. And the reason why they push for uh, yeah. the defunding of public education is because within private school industry, they can totally like ramp up all of these conditions because they're like oh yeah do you want efficient teaching well how about we suck all the breaks out of the teacher's day and then they're then they're saying words more often i don't know like it's just the same kind of logic that is about reducing the quality of education they're reducing the actual community infrastructure that is a school to actually say that this is just a production line of children into factories. Yeah, well, I mean, imagine yeah, you're I mean, trying to teach a class of unruly students and your boss comes down and tells you like, hey, the state's rolling out a new standardized test and also you're not responding to enough emails. It's like, fuck you. I'm trying to teach <laughs> children. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, 100 percent. And but so like as we mentioned at the top of the story, like since these workers can't legally strike. Right. They've had to turn to other methods to provide pressure. So uh, there have been a couple of different things. One, teachers have done door knocking campaigns where they've gone and, and talked to thousands and thousands of community members, parents, family members of students to be like, look, we're fighting for this stuff, not just to get more money because we want to because we're greedy, but it's like we want to be able to teach your kids we want to mm -hmm. be able to give them the best education we possibly can and these are the policies we need in place to be able to do that and we've and and obviously this is in the best interest of everyone in the community <laughs> and and so building community support that way and in addition the one this was i hadn't actually heard of this sort of a move at a at a school before but i thought this was very interesting the brookline educators um educators union they have actually, because of the stalled negotiations with the district, they've implemented a work-to-rule policy, which is not something I've heard of in a school before, but I think is very interesting. And in, in the case of a school, what that means is it's not like they're purposefully making their class teaching worse. Obviously, they wouldn't do that. Like What it means is that when they're asked to do those additional things outside the school day, prepping stuff after the hours they're legally required to work, they've said, look... If you're not going to actually pay us a living wage, if you're not going to agree to class size limits that allow us to actually teach every kid and provide them the education we need, we're not going to give you this extra labor for free because, yeah. and you won't let us strike. So, so we got to come up with other ways to do this shit. And so I, I, I thought that was a very interesting creative use of tactics. I think it's really smart because I think what it does is it kind of mirrors the behavior of these institutions back to themselves. You know, just like how an, an, an institution, whether a private or a public employer, is going to try and erode your rights right up to the absolute letter of the law legal limit. You, too, should, if you're barred from withholding your labor, for instance, try to withhold your labor right up to the letter of the law to 
the absolute legal limit. Uh, don't don't waste any resources. Uh, it makes me sad, obviously, that this is all they're allowed to do, but they should be using every tool in their toolbox. So I think it's a really good move. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're in Brooklyn, if you're if you live in Boston, in Cambridge, in Brookline, you know, support the teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think, though, that like while these tactics are really interesting, there's always the possibility that the districts will try and take advantage of the fact that that the workers aren't legally allowed to strike and just try and drag this shit out. So I would hope that there's at least some discussions, some considerations going on about the possibility of an illegal wildcat. Oh. Obviously, you know, you, it's there's a lot of risk, so you don't ever want to try, try and do that lightly. But I think it's something that, like, it's got to at least be there in the toolkit, like, as a last resort. Sure. So well, absolutely. And- you know, it's also kind of I hate I hate to take a particular struggle and suddenly make it about the overall labor movement in America. But like if there are enough illegal strikes, they eventually have to stop having it be illegal. <laughs> like that's how you yeah. make things legal is you just do them on mass until the government can't tell you no anymore. Right. Absolutely. And uh, I mean, I think that that brings us to uh, two of well, I mean, we have two more stories that we're going to hit. We're already running a little long, but we will try to get through these. And uh, but the first one we're going to go to is one that we kind of did we allude to this or did uh, or is this a different one than the because no, because that was the Brooklyn uh, uh, NLRB that was saying that uh, was yes. talking about captive audience meetings where this is Connecticut. Uh, where the legislature has passed a bill back on May 1st that would ban uh, employers from using captive audience meetings to indoctrinate workers into anti-union propaganda, um, which is going to be the second state after Oregon to ban this practice. And we're really, I mean, I know it's not a lot of good news all the time, but at least we have these couple little things keeping us going. (laughs) Yeah, this, I mean, I was surprised when I saw this news because... Uh, I lived in Connecticut for a few years and did not really consider the state to be a bastion of workers' rights. But, I mean, great job by the workers in Connecticut who have been lobbying for this for years, who have been pushing for this stuff. Because, again, like, the lawmakers didn't do this because they they felt benevolent towards the workers one day. Like, this only happened because of struggle by the workers. And this is this rocks because, yeah, like, like you said, like, it, while the NLRB is moving to try and ban captive audience meetings at a national level even if they're successful as we've talked about before because it's a regulation from the board the next time there's a republican president probably in 2024 uh, (laughs) they can appoint a new nlrb director and they can just overturn that precedent and throw it right back but with a new law on the books in connecticut that makes it one step harder to overturn. So, like, this is obviously going to help workers in Connecticut. It's good stuff. There was a statement from the AFL-CIO of Connecticut's president, Ed Hawthorne, who said, no employer should be able to force a worker to attend a meeting to coerce their opinion on religion, politics, or union organizing. And no one should be fearful at work for exercising their right to join a union. And, yeah, absolutely right. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I was very surprised to see this, but it was I, I, it was passed on the 1st. I think it was just signed by their governor. So I believe this is now Connecticut law that um, captive audience meetings are now illegal in Connecticut, which rocks. I mean. Yeah, fuck you, uh, Littler Mendelssohn. Take that pay cut. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, huge shocker. The local... Uh, business owners were not happy about this. The Connecticut Business and Industry Association, uh, basically just a trade group for uh, business owners, 
uh, like lobbied to oppose the bill. They've also vowed to challenge it in the courts. <laughs> their, their president, Chris DePentima, claimed that the CT legislature is, quote, too deferential to labor, which... What country are you living in, buddy? <laughs> yeah. Oh, so the majority of people aren't, you know, like subject to your coercive whims. Uh, I'm sorry, but I don't care. Yeah. And he, he threw out this ridiculous quote at a time when struggling small businesses desperately need Boo. support. The General Assembly <laughs> decided to make it even more difficult to do business in Connecticut and continues to weaken the employer employee relationship. Boo. <laughs> Fuck off. So stupid. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that's ridiculous. These business owners suck. Uh, good job. Workers of Connecticut, mm -hmm. excellent work lobbying for this, forcing the legislature to actually pass something like this. This rocks. I just hope it's not, you know, some shitty judge doesn't rule it unconstitutional. But for the moment, captive audience meetings are illegal in, in Connecticut, and that, that rules. So, That's so nice to have cool. a, a good story. <laughs> Well, and we you know, have workers another in one. Connecticut, take note. I would love to see a, a complaint based on this legal precedent make its way up to the uh, NLRB. Absolutely. Yeah, certainly. And that uh, other good story that I was referencing is DC bus drivers who got a huge victory after just a three-day strike, uh, partially because these are bus drivers or the people who are making it so that uh, lots of people can get to work, get around, do their shopping, and uh, they, they did their work stoppage for three days, and the private company that is the uh the bus system one of the two right one of the two bus systems maybe there's at more. least two yeah uh they did not even inform the the um people who ride the bus that this strike was happening basically leaving people at bus stops with no information and i before anyone thinks oh maybe this is the union's job to do this, i mean like the workers are are focusing on their strike, and if the company can't provide a service, then the company needs to be able to let the customers know. I mean, you and know. they just didn't. Yeah. Uh, so this was this is the this is a strike with 150 drivers on specifically the DC circulator line. I don't grant. Uh, frankly know a lot about the public transit system in dc seems like it's fragmented into a whole bunch of different systems which seems incredibly inefficient and it would make a lot more sense to just have them be run like a normal public transit right, system say, so it's insane. not even a public transit system it's <laughs> just I mean, a transit system <laughs> washington dc from my understanding has so many like technical fucking oddities and like irregularities about the way that the city is run partly because it's it's not in a state which is super weird and probably also partly because it's ground zero for bad decision making in the united states <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, I know that they're partially run by Congress. That's probably why this system is so fucked mm -hmm. up. Um, but so this was, yeah, this is uh, a strike by Amalgamated Transit Union Local 689. And yeah, it, like, this was because they're just not paying these drivers enough. Like, uh, the the DC Circulator bus drivers were starting at eighteen fifty an hour last year, while Metro bus drivers driving very similar routes in the same city, doing the same job, 
we're making $25 an hour. <laughs> That's a huge difference. Like there, we had a quote from Lamont Jackson, who's a nine year veteran driver who said, you got operators in different bus uniforms doing the same job we do driving the same roads, but they get more benefits, more everything. We got one common goal to pick up passengers and make sure we do it safely. All we want is parity. And <laughs> the, this it. strike got that's it. Not even a, yeah, that's not even a, a tall order, but no. it did come with a very large victory where yeah. uh, they managed to get uh, immediate wage gains for uh, 20, uh, of 25% to the lowest paid drivers and a further 18.5% increase over the three-year uh, contract for higher paid drivers. And that will bring their starting wage up to $23 an hour, which is just such an awesome win. I'm very impressed by, by a th- three-day strike getting such great concessions from the company. Absolutely. Yeah, like- that's a huge wage increase. I don't remember like the last time we we saw a uh, we saw a like percentage bump that high, and on only a three day strike, which I think helps emphasize like if if you're in logistics, if you're in transport, like the importance of those industries really amplifies the impact of you striking. So like, cause that like three day strike, Oh, it's only three days, but that's for, if your whole bus system in your city was shut down for three days, the ripple effects of that are enormous. So, I mean, the, we have a quote here from local 689 president, Raymond Jackson, who said, this is a great day for local 689. This strike showed the power of workers fighting for our rights. Local 689 DC circulator members did what we do best and won. Transit agencies across the country are now on notice. Public transit contractors cannot continue to make cuts on the backs of workers and riders. I'm proud of our members for standing strong and standing together. After months of negotiation, the con- this contract recognizes our members for the heroes they truly are. So, hell yeah. Like, well done, ATU local 689 drivers and big win do more strikes this shit rules yeah that's huge (laughs) i mean everybody in this country is asking like how do we keep up with inflation how do we keep up with the skyrocketing prices of everything and i mean like yes we do need to have like a proper revolution and overthrow our government so that it doesn't cost half the money you make in your lifetime to buy a house but also you can just get together with your fellow workers and uh demand more money and that's how you keep up with inflation hell yeah Well, on that positive note, we're going to move to a series of positive notes. That is the meme review. And I don't know if all of these are positive. I'm actually, we're going to scroll through and find out. But this first (laughs) one rocks. It is Chris Smalls standing next to President Biden. And this is what, what is this? This is some like, uh, it's a right wing joke, right? But it's kind of... uh, kind of like brought in as a joke from the left there's a specific guy i don't remember what his fucking name is but he draws these lines on photos of like men and women mostly to show that like men are the strong you know it's it's normal like fucking you know return to to tradition brainworm shit but he's like men are the strong unflinching ones and women lean in and if you look at this man who's leaning into the woman you can see he's become soft and soy and feminized and it's just very very stupid shit but right. it's so stupid that we have turned it into a trope of just making fun of it <laughs> yeah i really like this so somebody like reappropriated it so that because there's the picture of chris smalls and the other labor organizers in the oval office with biden and and chris is there it like 
dripped out with the incredible eat the rich jacket, like standing tall with it. So it's, it's got the green line over him labeled unflinching proletarian. And then the like dotted line. Cause Biden is like sort of stanced off away from yeah. Chris a bit for some reason, first, which is first day oh, standing awkward lessons. looking. If you read the, yeah. if you, yeah, if you read the, the body language here, I mean, he's really just like, not, he's not affirming the workers here. Yeah, and so there's a dotted line tracing him, and then Biden's just labeled cowers in fear of the fury of labor. <laughs> That's right. That is right. I, th- I think it's very funny to appropriate the thing. Uh, and then in our next very funny meme, we have a forklift meme, which is actually, this is very simple. It's just a forklift carrying like a, one a of those- pallet jack. A pallet jack. Oh, I didn't have the word for it. Yeah. Um, and, and the- the the text on this one says, "Please, my son, he's very sick." And just like, I, <laughs> you got you got to get in the Discord to see this one because it's so very funny. funny to to see uh, a a forklift uh, holding a I pallet love forklift jack. Memes. <laughs> yeah, and then we have a a flip of one of my favorite uh, memes, the infamous. Uh, Patrick Star is mayonnaise an instrument meme, <laughs> which is one of those memes that was literally just a scene in a TV show that stuck with a lot of people. But uh, he's in band class and he's holding up his hand and he says, is America a democracy? Uh, and uh, Squidward says, no, Patrick, America is not a democracy. <laughs> I, I love this one because it was actually made by one of our patrons, Star Scribbles, who put it in the uh, Discord. And thank you, Star, for, for giving us this amazing <laughs> meme because it really just highlights a point that we make very often here is that we definitely do not have a democracy in the United States. Hell yeah. And- I. I didn't even notice that this was was one that somebody close to us made. So it, that speaks volumes to h- how well it could stand as, on its own as a meme out in the wild. Kind of like when your friend shows you a song they made and you're like, you're sure that's not a song I just heard on the radio? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds pretty good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And on, on a related issue as to how we do not live in a democracy, we've got a variation on the trolley problem meme where you've got the trolley headed for a bunch of people on the track. You got the person standing at the switch, but there's actually nobody on the other track. And, and you really could just flip the switch and solve everything. And so it's captioned, you could throw the switch at any time, but then you won't be able to use the threat of the trolley to fundraise anymore. Oh (laughs) yeah. And this is definitely a critique of the Democrats, not enshrining, uh, protections against forced birth in the United States and uh and just like kind of being like oh our hands are tied though we're not good we can't do the filibuster blah, blah, blah whatever bullshit the excuse they're going to come up with for not protecting uh reproductive rights of people yeah. of people well and uh, shit you could use this for almost any issue like they could fucking enshrine trans rights they could fucking enshrine workers rights in law they could they could uh write legislation that would meaningfully eliminate uh, racial inequality in this country and they just fucking refuse to do it like chris small said pass the fucking pro act yeah (laughs) yeah because that's the thing it's like their whole thing is you have to vote for us you have to vote for us you have to vote for us and the question has to come up why you don't do anything i because i looked it up the day after the supreme court ruling leaked every democratic president jimmy carter uh, fucking Clinton, Barack Obama, and now Joe Brandon. Mm-hmm. Every single Democratic president since Roe v. Wade was ruled at one point or another in their presidency had control of Congress with the Democrats, both the House and the Senate. And none of them passed 
a, a national reproductive rights law. Not a single one of them, because they don't actually care about that. No, they, they care about just, fundraising. They just want your money. Mm-hmm. They, they, they provide an illusion of help that then when they are actually in position to pass any of those things, then they're like, well... It would make the Republicans nah. really mad if we did that. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, it's anyways, do not trust the Democrats. They're going to tell you like every other moment, Oh, you got to vote for us and we'll, we'll protect. No, they won't. Yeah, It's it's, it's the fucking text messages you get on your phone. Like during the election, it's like, will you help us fundraise to fight the psychotic Republicans? And then they get into office and it's like, will you help us fundraise to spread bipartisanship in this country? It's like, I thought you were going to fight those motherfuckers. But, but like, that's the thing. It's appealing to them isn't going to do anything. However, scaring them might. Because we saw when people started protesting in front of the Supreme Court justices' houses, even ones that the Democrats themselves claim to disagree with or dislike, they moved real fast to give the fucking like police and Secret Service more abilities to protect justices. So like protests work, just not ones that are like, now you need to go vote. <laughs> it's like it, it, it just goes back to like one of my favorite like quotes of all time which is power concedes nothing without a demand like we're not going out there to a- to ask the democrats nicely to do anything it is to demand that they do something or we will escalate said protest it also reminds Absolutely. me of one of my favorite quotes people say liberals are complacent well i'm ready to vote right now <laughs> <laughs> Uh, And then in our final meme, we're doing a shout out to our shop floor discussion, which will be coming later in the week. So become a patron for the full thing, but I'll make sure that the preview on that one's really long. Uh, But this is who did uh, who did it? Who placed this mobile order to my store? Ellen laughing my ass off. Uh, Fess up. I'm thriving. And it's just a photo of a Starbucks cup with the name Coward Schultz on it. <laughs> fucking love it. And it's also this just a rules. It's the smallest size of the most basic coffee. So part of me also thinks they put this order in just to give the employees a smile. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, because I saw a thing where like the management is now te- like management's now being told that if people order the drink with the name Union Yes or Union Strong or Solidarity with the, whatever, because that's you know one of the things that people have been doing to show support. Mm-hmm. They're now telling managers don't read that out loud if people want to order their thing you can let them but but don't read that oh. it's like okay fine we'll come up with other funny things to write yeah real <laughs> like fucking coward he- schultz real fucking heel face turn from the days when i worked at starbucks and i would get dragged into the back office and reamed out for not shouting out every name in my biggest announcer voice as i handed off the cups yeah <laughs> Yeah, Starbucks yeah, so fucking sucks. Insane. But uh, that is going to do it for us today, folks. Uh, if you'd like to support our show, we are entirely listener-funded, so we are never going to run ads, and we make this great content for you uh, with your help, and that help can be provided at patreon.com slash workstoppage, where you can give us $5 a month and unlock all of our uh, overtime evergreen episodes, as well as hear our shop floor discussions on things that we don't have time for in the episode, like the upcoming Starbucks episode. Uh, jump in the Discord where you'll get to see the meme review and check out that awesome forklift meme. Write us a review <laughs> somewhere. Write a, f- a five-star review on an order, on a mobile order for a Starbucks <laughs> coffee. And uh, That's right. 
Follow John on Twitter at Facebook Villain. Follow the pod at Work Stoppage Pod. I'm at Solidarity B. Listen to Beep Beep Lettuce. Listen to Red Game Table. And as always, labor peace is not in our interest. And solidarity forever. Solidarity. Solidarity, everybody.